Good morning. How are you? You're looking well. You're looking well. It's good to see you. My name is R.D. I'm one of the pastors here at Door Creek Church. And a special welcome if you're new, if you're visiting, if this is your first time here, one of your first times to church. We're really glad uh, that you are here. If this is your 1,000th time at Door Creek Church, then we're also really glad that you are here with us. We are coming to the end of our series, The Fight. So this is our fifth week, and, and uh, we've covered a lot, and we've just heard great responses about this series, how much it's been impacting people. And uh, I think a lot of that is because all of us are in a fight, and we realize that. And so it's just been really, really great. And so I know there's a lot more that we could cover. Every one of these messages could be its own message series, right? And so perhaps uh, maybe next year we'll do a fight part two because there's just so many things to cover. But for now, this will have to do as we wrap up the series. And so just as a recap, if you weren't here or if like me, you don't really remember always what even happened yesterday. In the first week, Mark talked about uh, our identity, rooting ourselves in Jesus, and that if we want to fight with health and with joy and with power, we have to be rooted in Jesus, have our identity in Jesus. And also, uh, I really appreciated how he just said fighting is normal. Right? This, this is normal part of the life of a follower of Jesus. Not peacetime, but wartime. And it is a battle, and that's normal. That's our starting point. And that helped ground everything else in the series. Secondly, in the second week, I talked about uh, facing your past, that all of us have a past. And all of us have parts of our past which are hard and difficult, but our past doesn't have to be a prison. It doesn't have to be something that we just stay in. But if we, if we can't heal from it, if we can't look at it in the face and find God's grace to redeem it, we won't be able to move forward and fight well. And so we try to look at tools to help us face our past, find freedom there, and move forward into a better present. In the third week, John talked about doubts. We all, we have doubts. We struggle with, with things that relates to God, our faith, all kinds of things. And, and that was so helpful because it says that doubt is not evil. It's not bad. It's not wrong, but it's how you process through your doubts. How do you deal with your doubts? How do you engage your doubts? And that God welcomes our doubts. He's okay with doubts. There are plenty of questions in the Bible about asking God, why are you doing this? We don't understand this. And that God is okay with that. And how do we process through our doubts? Thankful that God is okay with them. And he offers us himself as an answer time and time again. And last week, Mark talked about temptation, which was just fantastic and uh, such a huge topic. But it boils down to this. Uh, temp temptation is simply this thing which says to us, you can have short-term pleasure if you give in to this, but you're going to sacrifice long-term joy. Right? Temptation is, is the enemy, it's our flesh, which says that God is not ultimately good or worthy of our affection. Someone or something else is, and then if we just give in to this, then we'll find real joy. But we know that we really won't, but it's difficult. And that's part of the fight as well. So I'm going to build upon that talk and try and recap all of that and, and finish us with the topic of how to truly change. That's our topic for this morning. How to truly, truly change. And it's, it's a huge topic. We're just going to hit some big, some big points. There are three points to the message. Surprise, surprise. Number one, the desire and difficulty of change. The desire and the difficulty of change. Secondly, the heart of the problem. Why, why is it hard to change? And thirdly, how to truly change. So the desire and the difficulty of change, the heart of the problem, and um, how we truly change. So the desire and the difficulty of change. We're just coming off the new year. 
Hard to believe, but we're now into February. But the new year, if you right, are at the, the store, you see all the magazines that come out in December, but they're for January, and, and they're all about the new you. Right? They're all about change, all about this is going to be the year that you take hold of your life. You're going to be a better parent. You're going to be in better shape. You're going to be a better leader. You're going to be a better you. And here are the three steps. Here are the 38 steps. Here are the five steps. If you just can do these things, you are going to have the best year of your life. That change is kind of wired into our culture. It's wired into marketing. And a lot of us, we try, we want to change, but come January the 3rd, it, it has just hit, it's like, I, 2017's coming. So we'll just, we'll try it. We'll try it. We'll just try it then. Because I just, I want to, right, there's this desire, but then it's difficult. It's hard to change. We, a lot of us, we want to change, but it can be difficult to change. Political campaigns and candidates are built upon change. I think we could all identify with this, whoever we like, whatever we believe, right? Uh, as a great example, Barack Obama, his whole, plat- not his whole platform, but his big slogan was change you can believe in, hope and change, which is based on changing from President Bush. And now, eight years later, there are all these candidates who want to change everything again, right? Under this idea that the United States is moving towards a more perfect union, that we have changed hardwired into our, into our nation, that every day we're getting better and more enlightened. And if we just can have the right policies, the right education, we're going to have great change and we're going to be just a better people. But what happens is that they rarely deliver on the change, right? One or two things happen. Four years later, eight years later, someone comes in and says, everything is worse. We've got to change it again, right? And they make all these promises of change. And we get excited because we want change. We desire change. But then someone goes to Washington and they realize the difficulty of change. It's really hard. Desire and difficulty sometimes clash. A lot of times they clash. The self-help industry is built upon change. I went to my second home as a reader to Barnes & Noble, and I was perusing the self-help section, which I've seen they've renamed now, the Live Your Best Life section. (laughs) I thought it was very impressive. I was just looking at, I was like, all, you know, in the green, it has live your best life now, and then it has personal growth and all these other growths. And I was like, here it is, like here, and it's a huge section. And it gets bigger all of the time. There never used to be a section like this. But now we're fascinated with change, with personal change, with, with self-change. And I just thought, I'm looking at all the titles. And I'll be honest, there's some principles in many of these books that could be helpful, that, that can help you. They're not like all terrible or all awful. But I just thought, what if you added up all of the steps, right? Three steps here, 10 steps here. What if you took all these books? There'd be like 80,000 steps. Right, hard enough for many of us to put one step in front of the other, much less try and harness all of these books to understand how we should change. But books are being published, people are buying them because we have a desire to change. Whether we do it or not, right, we want to change. And people are making millions off of people's desire to change and the difficulty that comes with it. So they publish more books and we try more things, hoping this will be the magic bullet that helps us actually change for good. We all have dreams of a better life. And so we'll change everything. There are three kinds of people. I know it's always dangerous to say there are three kinds of people. Uh, But broadly speaking, when it comes to change, uh, the first group could be called the change haters. Right? You know who you are. (laughs) 
I'm not saying any, everyone nicely loves change. I don't, there may be a few people that just love, that some people that they do just love change. But uh, there, there also was a small minority of people, we're just set in our ways. We know enough, we think, and so we're good. We've got our routine. We know every Monday through Friday is set, Saturday and Sunday is set, right? We've learned everything that we want to learn. We hate change. We don't need to be told by anyone else, certainly not by a pastor or a leader or anybody, that we, we are good where we are. We are happy and content. No change necessary. Right? And there's a small percentage of us who are, who are um, like that. And I simply want to say to you, you are a fool. Right? How arrogant are you? <laughs> right? How arrogant are you to think I'm good? I've arrived at the level of enlightenment where I no longer need to change. I'm not even getting into the issue of whether change is, is hard or not, because it is. But are you even willing to consider it? Or do you just say, no, I'd rather not. I'm okay. Things aren't broken. So we're just going to keep on going. Just don't make me change anything. <laughs> and then the second group is change addicts. These are the people, they love change, right? I mean, they are changing all the time. A new city every couple years, new toothpaste every week, 30 different, you know, clothes they put on before they walk out the door. I mean, everything is changing. They change relationships, they change friend groups, they change jobs, they change all of these things. And you can kind of see it maybe sometimes on Instagram or, or Facebook, they're traveling somewhere, they're doing this thing, and you're like, man, things seem to be going really, really well with you. And everything around them is changing. They're addicted to change. They have to have new things to stimulate them. But when you kind of strip all of that away, you look at them and you think, actually, but you haven't changed at all, really. <laughs> you know, like you're addicted to changing everything else around you, but you still seem like the same person. All the same struggles, all the same issues. I'm not sure if this new city is actually what you need. Maybe, maybe it is, but oftentimes it's not because then we just go to that new city and we take that new job and it's still us. We've never addressed anything really. <laughs> but it feels like for a little bit there's potential, there's possibility, there's desire. But then it's like, oh, it's still RD. Maybe new city. <laughs> but for most of us, we're not necessarily change addicts, we're change haters. The third category of people is what I just call the stuck. <laughs> the stuck. I think we could all say, yeah, I, I'm totally like that a lot of the time. And these, these are like, men, like me, like a lot of us that have this desire to change, but we just keep running against right, this ceiling. We want to change, and we've tried to change. We've got things in our life we know we need to change, but it's, it, we can't sustain it. We can't happen more than a week or two. We want to be further along than we are. As a pastor, I have a front row seat to hearing people's stories of how much they want to change, how much they desire to change, but oftentimes not knowing where to begin. Oftentimes when I'm counseling with someone, they'll just say, RD, I, I don't even know where to begin. I know where I want to be. I know where I, where I want to go, but I'm not sure how to get from here to there. All right, some fictitious examples, but I think they paint a real picture of people that are stuck. So take Jason and Sarah. They've been married 20 years. They go to a church, a healthy church. They're even in a life group. Uh, they have three kids, one of them who just began to drive. And they, they've had, for many years, they had a happy and, and a healthy marriage. But for the past five years, things have just been starting to boil underneath the surface. It came to a head for Sarah when Jason bought their oldest son a car without telling her. And he brought it back to the house. And it was kind of the last straw for her of how he no longer cared about her opinion or, or asked her her opinion. He just went ahead and made all the decisions that he wanted. 
It didn't begin that way, but for the past five years, whenever she's said something or suggested something, it's kind of been met with silence or, yeah, I'll think about that, but nothing ever really changes. And so for the past five years, Sarah's just been building this resentment and animosity that she's not even sure what to do. She brings things up, but she kind of gets silenced. And Jason just keeps making these decisions for himself because he thinks he knows what's best for their family. And on the flip side, Jason is, is a dad who's been very involved with their three kids. He goes up changing diapers. He does the dishes. He picks them up from school sometimes. He does all of these things. He thinks, I don't have to do these things, but I do these things. And yet for the past five, six years, he feels like Sarah doesn't give him any respect for any of that. She just assumes this is what you, you should do. So why should I go out of my way to thank you when you're making all of these decisions? And then he begins to build resentment up in his heart. And for five years, they, for, maybe for the first few years, they say something. But then for the past several, they don't say anything. And there's just this kind of um, tension that exists between both of them. And as they go to sleep every night in the same bed, but in, really in two different worlds, they think, we, we want to change. We desire to change. I don't want to resent you the way that I do. I don't want to feel the way that I do about you. But I don't even know where to begin. And they begin to think of all kinds of options of what the next best future looks like. And to be honest, they're just stuck. And though they keep coming to church and keep telling their life group everything is okay, it's really not. Or take, take Jose. He's 35 years old, single guy, had a hard life growing up with a single mom who worked all of the time. And so we didn't get to see her very much. He finally fell in love with a girl named Validia when, when he was 30, and he thought, this, finally someone loves me, finally someone accepts me, finally there's some stability in my life. I don't have to go back to these bad habits that I used to have of drinking and drugs. Someone now accepts me and loves me, and everything's going to be okay. And the relationship was great, and it was good, but two years into their relationship, Validia broke up with him. And now for the past three years, Jose has been on this downward path of depression and drugs and alcohol. And he sees a lot of his friends who are married and have kids who are having all of these successes. And every once in a while, he's gone to church, but he's just felt more guilty because all they say is just don't think about yourself and be strong. And he just feels like that actually makes things worse, not better. And he sits in his one-bedroom apartment. He has bottles all around him, and he doesn't, want, he doesn't want to be like this. He wants to have a job. Right? He wants to have a family, but he's absolutely stuck and doesn't know even where to begin. His desire is diminishing, but it's still there. But he just thinks, there's no way I could ever really change. I've tried too many times. I'm just stuck where I am. And finally, we have Naomi. She's 18. She grew up in a family that went to church on Christmas Eve and Easter, so not really very religious, but she went off to youth camp, which can be dangerous, and she came back on fire for the Lord. Her parents are a little bit scared now, right? She's really loved, she's not just kind of going to church, she loves Jesus, which are two very different things. And so for the past two years, she's been going to to church, she's in all the Bible studies, she's memorizing the scripture, she wants to teach the Bible, she shows up all the time. She's in Awana. She's in Sunday school. She's doing all these things to help. She's even tutoring in her local school, her church partners with. She's doing all of these things. And yet deep down when she goes home at night, she's thinking, man, I, I, I love Jesus, but why do I still struggle with all the same stuff I used to struggle with before I was a Christian? Right? I thought I would be further along than this. I still have identity issues. I'm still working through my past. I thought when I came to faith in Christ, all that would just disappear. But actually, I actually have some more guilt issues now. I have more pain now. And church is actually becoming this place that just reminds me of how far I am from God. 
not how much God loves me and cares for me. And she actually has this great desire, but the difficulty of seeing any real change in her life is starting to wear on her. And wherever any of us are in those examples in something else, all of us in some ways have a desire for a better life. But many of us don't know how to get there. Paul Tripp writes in his excellent book, How People Change, he says, nothing is more obvious than the need for change. Nothing is less obvious than what needs to change and how that change happens. Nothing is more obvious than the need for change. Nothing is less obvious than what needs to change and how that change happens. Andy Stanley, who's a pastor in Atlanta, he has a great line where he talks about how, how we change most where it matters the least. <laughs> And he uses examples of think of a board game or a video game. How many mistakes do you make in a board game or a video game before you don't make them anymore? Because you want to beat your brother, right? You want to beat your dad. I'm not going to make that mistake. Going to press that button. Going to make that move. I made that mistake once. I'm not going to make it again. I learned, right? You're taking up a hobby. You make a few mistakes with it, but you want to be really great at whatever the hobby is. You quit making those mistakes quickly. You start learning a sport playing tennis, hitting a tennis ball, hitting a baseball, riding a horse. You're going to make some mistakes. You're going to right, hit and miss a lot. I know I did, which is why I quit playing baseball and did something else. But it takes a lot of practice. But over time, you quit making those mistakes. And a lot of us, we can change in that. We can adapt in that. But when it comes to our relationships, when it comes to our marriages, when it comes to our leadership, when it comes to how we do business, right, how in our home, many of us don't learn. And we keep making the exact same mistakes over and over and over again. Why is that? Why is it, why is it not easy? Why is it so difficult? Why is it, why is it so hard? Why is the difficulty greater than our desire sometimes? Well, I think it's, it's, it's because we rarely dig down deep enough to uncover what the heart of the problem is. Why we struggle. Why it's difficult. Why it's not sustainable. And unless we can dig down deep enough and uncover what's really gone wrong, then we won't have no power to really change or sustain change. So what's the problem? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because that's point number two, the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem. Why is it so hard to change? Why is it so hard to sustain change? And here we want to be very clear. We, we have to have the right diagnosis for the problem. Because if you don't have the right diagnosis, you're going to get the wrong solution. If you go to the doctor and your shoulder's really upset, but you tell her that your knee's really upset because you don't want to deal with your shoulder, then she's going to give you all the medicine and help for your knee, but your shoulder's going to get worse. You said it was your knee, but it's really not. And, and if we don't have the right diagnosis, then we're going to get all the wrong kinds of medicine, and we're never going to have the deepest things in our heart actually helped. And so to oversimplify, but in time, I think it's helpful. Our, our culture has kind of picked out three big diagnoses that I think it says, here are the problems. And if you can address these, if you can deal with these, you will change and you'll have hope for change. And so here are the three big ideas. Number one, if you could change your circumstances, that's the diagnosis. Your circumstances are the problem. You're not the problem. Everything around you is the problem. Whether or not these same problems keep following you no matter where you go. And so maybe you need to change your job, change the scenery. Maybe even, saddest of all, you need to change a spouse, change a relationship partner, change a friend, because this is no longer doing for me what I thought it could do for me. And so if things around me could change, then maybe I could be better somehow. And so if my circumstances change, maybe I could change. 
Secondly, maybe I'll change my behavior. Now, this is getting, this is getting closer to what's important. It is important to change your behavior. It, is, it does matter. These things have to change. But if that, is that the ultimate thing which has to change? My behavior, I just need to work on being nice to my spouse. I need to work on respecting my boss. That's, that's going to be sustainable. Or we live under this illusion that as we get older and have more experience, we're going to be smarter and better. Some of you are laughing, like, <laughs> hilarious, right? I talk to you know, older people all the time, and they're just like, I thought, I, to be honest, I thought I'd be further along than I am. I had a professor at Dallas Seminary, Howard Hendricks, who was, when I took his class, I mean, he was like 90-something years old. He was a legend, a leadership legend, a professor. He's just an unbelievable guy. And he would always say, class, um, it's not experience that matters. It's evaluated experience that matters. You can have all the experience in the world, but if you never process through it or think through what happened, what behavior you made, you'll never learn from it. You'll never change. And so the question is not, tell me about your experience. The question is, what did you learn from your experience about yourself, about God, about your coworker, about your spouse? Then you're beginning to think, okay, maybe next time my behavior actually has the potential to be different. Because many of us have a lot of experience, but we keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And so behavior changing is good, but it's not the problem. And the last big idea is my self-concept. And this is the narrative of our culture. Follow your heart. Right. Be you. How many books did I read at Barnes Noble that had this about? Just, just you need to elevate and affirm yourself as greater and more awesome. And if you do that, you are awesome and greater. <laughs> Whether or not anyone else ever tells you that, you just believe it, and you are good to go. You are special. You are amazing. You are the only unicorn in the world. There's no one else like you. Even though deep down we know, we know that's not enough. We know it's not enough. But in our culture, it's just it's this driving force that says, follow your heart above all else. Thankfully, the Bible never says that. The Bible says, no, don't follow your heart. Because your heart is the problem. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. That, that's what the, pro the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Because in the Bible, sometimes we think of the heart as just my feelings and what I write to my spouse maybe on Valentine's Day, right? Or my parents on, on Mother's Day, right? That's my heart. I'm just pouring it out on you. But in the Bible, it's much more robust and, and beautiful than that. In the Bible, the heart means your soul, your will, your mind, your affection, your desires. It's all gathered together in one word in the Bible. It's called the heart. Your heart is the steering wheel of your life. It guides everything. It dictates your behavior. It dictates your thoughts. It dictates all of that, which is why the Bible is so clear about guarding it and owning it in Proverbs 4.23. It says this, above all else, which sounds important, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart because everything flows from your heart, like a reservoir that pours into the rivers. If the reservoir is dirty, the whole river is going to be dirty. Everything else you do flows from your heart. Proverbs 27, 19, as water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. The problem is for us is because of this thing called sin, which is separation from God. 
where we've chosen to pursue people or things outside of God for happiness. Because that has happened, our hearts have been distorted and broken and they're bent. Our hearts are not like the crystal waters of the Caribbean. They're more like a garbage dump filled with darkness and brokenness and more and more gets padded on to there. Right? We, we, we make bad choices. We sin because in our hearts we're broken. I've used this example many times, but I think it's just so important. My girls are two years old, and their favorite word right now is mine. <laughs> mine. Right? Just this morning, I was up reading with them. We have got them the exact same books, exact same. And Maisie's like, no. <laughs> right? My book. I'm like, Maisie, li- literally, this is the, um, this is the, throws that book on the ground. I want Camille's book. This is mine. Like, where did, she's two years old. Where did she learn that? Does she see me at the house when Emily has a book that I want to read? Just go over to her and say, mine. <laughs> right. It's mine. And then Maisie's like, that daddy did it. That's what I should do. I'm going to do that to sister. No. Right. <laughs> the kids, I love my girls, but I, I have to teach them to share. Because they're born not to honor God or be selfless. They're born to honor themselves. And it's not just two-year-olds whose favorite word is mine. It's my favorite word, and it's your favorite word. Mine. And unless we fix the heart, we have no possibility for real change, for real movement. But thankfully, in the gospel, this is what God has done for us. The gospel is the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 puts it this way. This is a prophecy God speaks of the coming of Jesus. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So God is saying in the Old Testament that one day Jesus is coming and he's going to replace our dead heart, our bad heart, and give us a good heart, give us a better heart, a heart that can not just, not just be new, but can have new will and new desire and new affection, that we now have the power to follow God, where before we were powerless to do that because we were dead in our sin, separated from God. We were not able to follow him or love him until he awakened us with his grace and his love. And then Jesus Christ comes on the scene and Paul speaks of it this way. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul writes, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. God, who at the beginning of creation, where there is complete darkness, speaks life and light, and there is life and light, does so again in our hearts and says, where there's darkness in your heart, where the steering wheel is completely corroded, I'm going to speak life into your heart and light into your heart and push back the darkness. And that Jesus Christ will literally be living in you, that he will be in you. God's glory, the light of the knowledge of God's glory. And this is what the gospel, the gospel does. It's, it's called salvation. It's what God does in one moment at one time. It's not, it doesn't take a lifetime. God does it at one moment. He saves you. He rescues you. He justifies you, makes you right. He adopts you just like that by his grace and his mercy alone. You didn't do anything to earn it. He did it because he loves you and desires for you to have a new heart and a new affection. And after that happens... What does God say? Does he say, okay, 
I gave you a new heart. I've given you new affections. I fixed a big problem. So now you've got to go figure it out. <laughs> you've, got, you've got 20 years left. You've got 50 years left. You've got 60 years left. I've done the heavy lifting. I'll see you in heaven. You go figure it out. <laughs> go work really hard. No. God doesn't say that, thankfully. God is not only interested in our salvation. He's interested in our transformation. He's not only interested, though wonderfully, graciously he is, in a one-time moment of salvation. He's also interested in walking with us day by day by day to transform us to be more like his son, Jesus. He doesn't abandon us. He comes right alongside us and gives us the power and the ability and the reassurance that through his power, you can change. You can be transformed, not by your will, but by his will working in you. Until one day, we see Jesus Christ face to face and we're made fully like him. But it has to begin with a heart. Right, Paul says in Philippians 2.12, he talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does it mean to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? How do we work out our salvation? How do we change? How do we implement what God has done in our hearts and actually have our lives look different? How, we're not, how do we not just be redeemed, but live redeemed? Live like holy people. How does that actually happen? It begins with a new heart, but it doesn't end there. And that's the final point to which we turn as we, as we close, how to truly change. How do we truly change? Now, just a caveat here first. Besides Jesus Christ, there is no magic bullet. <laughs> I have no special medicine for you that you're, it's going to be in the communion that just is going to make you a totally different person, have no more problems, no more issues. doesn't happen like that. But I think there's some principles here from the scriptures that really can help us change day by day by day. They'll be up on the screen. The first one is, is this how to truly change, being rooted in the gospel. Being rooted in the gospel, Colossians 2, 6 through 7, Paul writes, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thanksgiving. And so being rooted in the gospel of who God is, what God has done for you, Right? The gospel is not just a one-time decision. It's an all-the-time dependence. It's the way into the kingdom, and it's the way that we grow in the kingdom. We always are coming back to the source and saying, who has God made me to be? What has God done for me? And how does that help inform how I should live, how I should love, how I should serve, how I should do conflict? All of these things are informed by who Jesus is. And Paul says, you receive Jesus. He's living inside of you, but you have to keep walking in him. And thankfully, the Spirit helps us actually do that. But you can't just say, I'm good now. We have to keep walking in him, being rooted in him, because this is where joy is found. And to follow Jesus Christ is to follow true joy. And this is going to help us give the power for change. Well, it's not that we come to Jesus Christ and then we're like, well, all these other things are actually better. When we come to Jesus Christ, when we taste of his grace, we want to taste more of it. We want to drink more deeply of it because we've seen this is true joy. All the great longings of my heart are actually found in Jesus Christ and to know him and to be loved by him. I want to keep rooting myself in him. So how, how deep do your roots grow? How deep do they go down in the soil? Because many things will come and try to rip them up. But thankfully, God is the one who truly anchors us. Even if it feels like we've been uprooted, because of his love and grace, he keeps us planted in the ground. 
We have to be rooted in the gospel. Secondly, we're rooted in the gospel. We have to be daily uprooting sin. So there's rooting ourselves in the gospel. There's uprooting sin. Because though we are new creation, we still sin, right? (laughs) We all still struggle. Paul talks about this in Colossians 3, just the next chapter, Colossians. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Uprooting sin. I love Paul does not say manage your sin. He doesn't say coddle your sin. He doesn't say it's not that big a deal. Just don't do it that much. He says, put it to death. Kill it. (laughs) Because if you aren't killing sin, it will be killing you. That's what it does. It wants to kill you. It wants to destroy you. It brings death. Sin is a death bringer. And if we aren't putting it to death actively, daily, then we're letting these other roots grow around the true roots of the gospel. So we've got to be uprooting our sin. And so here's what may be helpful. Think of the things that you do, that you think about, that you meditate on, the scriptures, prayer, maybe going for a walk, listening to music, going for a car ride, whatever it is. What stirs your affections for Jesus? When you're doing this, when you're thinking about this, what makes you, this makes me more in love with Jesus. This stirs my affection for Jesus. I would say, do that more. (laughs) Get in more habits of doing that. And whenever it robs your affection for Jesus, don't do that. <laughs> now, it doesn't mean that you remove yourself from the world and stay in your house and listen to worship music, <laughs> right? That's not the answer. But there are things in our life, there are sins that keep coming to us that will always be a part of our lives in this world. But are we actively trying to put them to death to create conditions in our life where we say no to sin and say yes to Jesus because he's better? He's better. And if we're rooted in the gospel, it gives us the power to uproot these sin issues that keep coming, right? It's like whack-a-mole. You just got to keep hitting them, right? And sometimes you're going to miss. And sometimes, you know, when you miss a couple times, you want to hit that next one really hard, right? Is it just me? Okay, good, good, great. Thank you. But that's how it works. You've got to keep doing it. It's daily. Root ourselves in the gospel, uproot sin. Thirdly, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit of God. One of the... um, books I read, getting ready for this, said the gospel comes with batteries included. His name is the Holy Spirit, and he lives inside of you as proof that God does not abandon you. The Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, moves you to love God more, is always walking with you to help you. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 5. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit helps reorient our desires to God, to who he is, that there would be fruit of the Spirit in our life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. All of these things will be fruit that's being born in our life because we're walking with the Spirit and keeping up with the Spirit. 
And this happens through reading the Bible. Spirit-filled people are word-soaked people. There is no shortcut. There, there, is no, there is no other way. Reading the scriptures, praying, being a part of a church community, having a habit of coming to church weekly. Because when you, when you begin to have these habits of reading the Bible, you'll read the Bible more. When you begin to pray more, you'll pray more. When you begin to come to church more, you'll come to church more. Right? Feed what glorifies God. Starve what doesn't. Number four, this is going to be pretty quick here. Number four, be in biblical community. See the entire New Testament. <laughs> All of it. <laughs> just, just go see it. Right? In our individualistic age, we sometimes think the Bible was written to me. And gently, I just want to say it wasn't. <laughs> it was written for you, but not to you. And so the being biblical, right, change is a community project. It doesn't happen on an island. And that's why the church is so important. Life groups are so important that people can know you and be around you to know what you're walking through. Because if no one knows you, how can you really have change in your life? If there's no one in your life who can speak honestly to you, there won't be any change. And I know this is hard. I know it's difficult to say, what if they really knew? But we want to create a culture here at Door Creek where we're messy because show me a messy church and I'll show you a grace-filled church where people are okay to say, I got a lot of stuff actually going on. And maybe someone else then has the courage to say, ah, me too. I want to change. Can we walk together by the Spirit and change together? And that's why we're so key on this. This helps form us as the people of God, being in biblical community. All of the New Testament letters are written to churches. Paul is expecting that you will do all of this life change in community not separated from it. It's hard enough in community, much less on your own. And fifth and finally, the goal is Christ-likeness. This is the goal, Christ-likeness. Galatians 4, 19. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. This is so key, so important. The purpose for which God is working all things in your life is to make you more like Christ. And so that helps us think, why is this thing happening to me? Or why is God allowing this? Or why is God doing this? Or why is God not doing this? Everything God is doing is for a good purpose in the end, to make us, make us more like Jesus Christ until Christ is formed in us. And just as a baby is conceived in the womb and spends nine months growing and getting nourishment and becoming right, uh, right, more whole until it's finally birthed, Paul's saying, for you and I, my desire is that right in this world, you're growing in the womb, right? The earth is the womb. And then one day, we are get, we're birthed. And we see Jesus Christ face to face, but the whole time in the womb, Christ is being formed in us, that everything God is doing is to make us more like Jesus, which is why it is terrible advice to say, follow your heart, but to follow Christ. And it's really important here to keep two things in mind, both a marathon mentality and a step-by-step -step mentality. This is, change is the long game. It, it takes your whole life. It takes your whole life. So we have to be patient. We have to not expect results every single day. Think of your life in six-month periods, not every week. Don't, right, if you, if you want to change and tomorrow just be like, how much have I changed? Probably not a lot. But six months from now, how much have you changed? 
How much have you changed in six months? Look at your life in bigger periods. It's amazing. Sometimes you may say something or do something, and you think, that was actually holy. <laughs> where, where did that even come from? And yet God has been working over time, over time, to make you more like his son. And next thing you know, you think differently, you say something differently. Day by day, you may not see it, but over time, you will. And secondly, it's not just the marathon, because sometimes that can be overwhelming, like I, just for today. And the great news is that it's day by day, because to begin a marathon, it takes one step. The only way to complete 26.2 miles is to walk or run all of them, <laughs> or just on the ground, trying really hard, unless they pick you up in a stretcher. <laughs> right? It take, it's every single day, and thankfully, God's mercy is new every single day for us, sustaining us, sufficient for every single day. It's day by day by day. I know it doesn't sound sexy. I know it's not like really, but this is real life. It happens over the course of our whole life, and it happens day by day. And thankfully, God is the one who will do it. Philippians 1, 6, Paul says, Be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Be confident of this, that he who began the good work, he who, who saved you, right? It's God who invites us to change, who sustains our change, and who will change us completely. So we don't have to think it's all my work. I'm trying really hard to get into heaven. If I just change more and more, then God will really accept me. No, he already accepts you, which is the power for your change, and he will complete it. And so some of us, right, all of us, by some of us, I mean all of us, will fall this week and fail this week, right? We want to change. We have desires to change. We've fallen so many times in the past, and we just think if God really knew, there's no way because I've fallen so much. I thought I'd be so much further along than I am, but I'm still just stuck. I'm, try, I'm taking like it's one step a day, maybe one step a week. It doesn't feel like much progress. And I just want to say this to you. When my girls first started to walk, and Maisie started to walk first, which I'm sure she'll hold over her sister one day. And she took like one step and then fell. That was it, like one step, but it was like a real step. Like, what did I do as the dad? Did I go, one step? Really? Are you a McClanagan, <laughs> right? Are you kidding me? You just fell down for one step. Should I applaud that, right? No, what did I do? One step, barely even a step. I went over, gave her the biggest hug, yelling, just so excited. Amazing, you, you walked one step. It's amazing. This is unbelievable. Even though she fell and she fell again. And that's how God views our progress. He doesn't say, you fell again. He says, you're walking. You're walking. And he goes over and he picks us up and he says, let's try again. Let's walk. One, one, one more step. Just one more step. And every time we fall, God doesn't say, I knew it. He actually says, I did know it. And I'm here to come pick you up and help you walk again. Right, and if we see God celebrating us, instead of being so angry with us with our progress, it'll help us actually make progress. And every day, maybe we walk a little bit more. Maybe some days we go backwards. But God is always there with us. He's always there with us. And so the question is, are, are you willing to change? Do you want to change? Do you have a desire to change, to be who Christ is calling you to be? That's going to take you getting out of the way. I'll finish just with, with this. My, my uh, wife and I went through a, you know, a hard year last year just in our marriage. We have these new kids. It's difficult. We were just kind of fighting a lot, not talking a lot, and so we go to bed, and we just wouldn't say a lot. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like, I'd just rather not. <laughs> it's just not going to be helpful. <laughs> 
And it's unusual because that's just not how, you know, we were in First Mary, and it's just kind of like, man, this is actually really, really hard. And I was just thinking as a pastor, like I'm giving all this pastoral advice. I'm like, this is how you need to change your marriage. This is how you should do this and this. And then I go home, and it's just like tension, like, you know, and the girls are crazy. Life is crazy. And it's just like, I'd just rather not deal with it. And then those kind of grew from day to day to like weeks and weeks and months and months. And it was just like this, like really stuck. And I was just so frustrated and angry with her, and she's angry with me. And I'm thinking, this can't, is this, what's happening? Right. And one night in bed, Emily looked at me and she just said, RD, I think that, I think we need to go to counseling. And I was like, in my heart, I was like, oh no, you didn't. <laughs> like, oh no, you're not taking the pastor to counseling. Like, you know, because <laughs> in my, in, in my, in my heart, I was like, I, I, I know I'm not where I should be, but you know, literally this is where I was. This is not where I am. I'm just being brutally honest. I was literally in my heart. I was like, counseling is for losers. I was like, I can't go to counseling. What would that say to the people I counsel? <laughs> right? And I was just so angry with her and so frustrated with her. I was like, because it meant I didn't have it all together like I thought I could. And six, seven months of just trying and trying these things and trying to do these things, it just kept hitting the ceiling. And we were not where I knew that I wanted us to be. And so thankfully, the next morning I woke up and I felt the Lord say to me. And so if you need a church, sometimes God speaks to us. Okay, it's not uncommon. I didn't hear it audibly, but I heard him say, he was like, R.D., are you, are you more in love with the illusion you have of your life and your pride than you are your marriage or your future or where I want to take you? Like, how arrogant are you? Do you want to change? Do you think you can change on your own or do you need help? Do you want help? And I just broke down and I just thought, yeah, I need, I need help. And we went to counseling, and it was great. I remember, just to be honest, after the first couple of times, I thought we'd, we would just be a lot further along than we were, right? And then I messed up or said something again, and I was like, ah, darn it. <laughs> darn it, I thought. And yet, over time, going and submitting myself to someone else who could speak into my life and just saying at the end of the day, I don't have all the answers. I need someone else speaking into my life because I want to have a better marriage. I want to be a better person. I want Christ to be formed in me. I want these things to happen, but they aren't just going to happen. And I can tell you, my marriage is not perfect, I assure you. <laughs> but it's better than it was. It's better than it was. This is what the fight is all about. It's what it is all about, having the humility and the honesty to say, Jesus Christ changed me from the inside out. And sometimes not even knowing what's going to happen after that. God loves you exactly where you are, but he refuses to leave you where you are. It is okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay there forever. And thankfully, we don't have to. This is the verse we began the series with. It's kind of Paul's final verse, if you will, I feel like, of his whole life. He says this, I have fought the good fight, 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And listen to this, and not only me, but also all who have longed for his appearing. And so we fight hard right now until the day we get a crown and we have to fight no more. Let me pray for you. Our Father, 
I'm so thankful that you, you, you have saved us and rescued us, and yet you've, you've stayed with us and not abandoned us. And I, I pray for everyone here. I know many of us have desires to change, but it's hard. And we think about our life, we think about our family, and we just think, I, I'm hearing all this, but I still don't even know where to begin. And Father, would you help us begin with you and put our hearts on you, Lord, and pray to you and ask, just ask, open up ourselves, humble ourselves, Lord, that the journey of becoming more like you begins every single day when we wake up. There are no shortcuts. And so, Father, for everyone here, I just pray for an outpouring of your spirit, that your spirit would guide us, that we would fight well, fight hard, and look forward to the day you reappear, Lord, when you say, here's a crown, put down the sword, the fighting is over. In the name of Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen.